0: I know that was a lot to digest in session number one, it's the old uh, metaphor of drinking from a fire, ho- fire hydrant, um, but I get, that goes with the territory when you're dealing with a subject like critical race theory because there's so many layers to it. Um, so now we're at part two, so I, I've spoken to this point about the ideological connectedness between critical race theory and Marxism but there's a chronological connectedness as well, which I alluded to earlier, and that chronology begins with what is known as critical theory. So basically what I'm gonna do right now is answer the question, well, how do we get here? How do we get to critical race theory? How do we, we even get here? Well, crit- critical race theory began with a philosophy known as critical theory, or CT. CT, okay, critical theory by definition, it provides a specific interpretation of Marxist philosophy with regard to a critique of mass culture. In other words, to repeat what I said earlier, critical theory criticizes all aspects of Western culture through the lens of Marxism. C.T., critical theory. More, normally, more formally known, rather, as the Frankfurt School, you may have heard that term before, Critical theory is a philosophical and sociological movement spread across many universities around the world. It was originally located at what was called the Institute for Social Research. The Institute for Social Research at the Goethe University in Frankfurt, Germany. The institute was founded originally in 1923 by a wealthy German-Argentine Jew by the name of Felix Weil. The last name is spelled W-E-I-L. Weil founded the Institute for Social Research with the aim of developing Marxist studies in Germany. So so Weil's objective was to teach Marxism in this institute and then have those graduates go out into all of Germany and practice that philosophy across that nation. After 1933, so the, the, the institute was founded in 1923, 10 years later in 1933 the Nazis are in charge and they forced the closure of the Institute of Social Research why'd they close it well because it was run by Jews and one thing we know about Nazis they hated Jews so they shut the Institute down but it was relocated to the United States where it found Hospitality at. Columbia University in New York City. And if you were to search right now for the Institute of Social Research, Columbia University, New York, you will find that the institute is still there at Columbia University. Columbia University has a history of accommodating communism. If you were to uh, research uh, graduates of Columbia University and their ties to communism, you would come up with a list this long. So it's no surprise that the institute ended up at Columbia University. Now it's the Institute for Social Research which several decades later, in the 1970s, gave rise to a movement known as critical legal studies. Critical legal studies. So now we've gone from CT to CLS. CT to CLS, we are now, we've uh, progressed from the 1920s to the 1970s. As a movement, CLS was comprised predominantly of a group of white, neo-Marxist, new left, and countercultural intellectuals within the legal academy who sought to study the impacts of American legal jurisprudence through a Marxist construct of justice and equality, through a Marxist construct of justice and equality. Now it's my contention that it was the CLS movement that initiated a shift from Marxism being fundamentally a philosophy of economic class struggle to one of cultural and identity struggle. So if you go back and study what I call orthodox Marxism, it's primarily an economic issue. This is where Marx and his successors want to do away with with, uh, capitalism altogether and create a new state or society of economic nirvana rooted in Marxism. So it was once totally economic. But with the CLS movement in the 70s, there was a shift to where it's more cultural now. It's more societal, it's more identity. So from the CLS movement in the 1970s, emerged what is known today as critical race theory or CRT. So i have taken you from CT to CLS to CRT. Similar to the CLS movement, the CRT movement began with a group of black neo-Marxist legal scholars who met at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the summer of 1989. They met there with the goal and the belief that their predecessors in the CLS movement didn't move the dial far enough to the left for black people in America. Now consider the victories that black people have obtained in America prior to the CLS movement. They got the Voting Rights Act in in 1964. Uh, they got the Civil, sorry, Civil Rights Act in 1964, they got the Voting Rights Act in 1965. As I mentioned earlier, redlining was outlawed. On on paper, in the law, black people had finally gained uh, some of the rights and privileges that their uh, ancestors had been struggling for for almost 200 years. And uh, matter of fact, I want to say this, and again, not to anger anyone, uh, not to offend anyone, but when you look at the rapidity with which the LGBTQA movement has garnered and gained civil rights protections in less than a decade. Some of the same rights and privileges that it took black people almost 200 years to get. It took black people an Emancipation Proclamation, a 13th Amendment to the Constitution, a 14th Amendment to the Constitution, a 15th Amendment to the Constitution, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, All it took for LGBTQA was to elect President Obama. Boom. The flag that the LGBTQA movement promotes as its symbol inherently gives them rights and privileges that people like you and me, we don't get because of who we are, but they get them because of who they are. This is the kind of thing that gave birth to the CRT movement. A group of black Marxist legal scholars got together at the University of Wisconsin and said, "Nope, those victories weren't enough. They weren't enough. They're reproblematizing. They weren't enough. Didn't move the far, didn't move the dial far enough." So they got together and said, "Well, how can we reproblematize those, even though those issues have been solved in law, in law?" I have a a PowerPoint version of this same presentation, and in that PowerPoint version, I have a slide that I titled, You Can't Win If You're White. You can't win. Why do I say that? Listen to what Dr. Daniel Subotnik, professor of law at Truro College of Law in Central Islip, New York, says in this book titled, Toxic Diversity, subtitled, Race, Gender, and Law Talk in America. In that book, there's a chapter that Dr. Subaknick titled, What's Wrong with Critical Race Theory? Subtitled, Reopening the Case for Middle Class Values. This is going to answer the question of why I titled that PowerPoint slide, If You're White, You Can't Win. Dr. Subaknick says this, quote, With control of race discourse in their hands, critical race theorists turned their attention away from the legal academy and toward American culture in general. This is why I say the... the the idea of, of economic Marxism shifted from, ec- oh, sorry, economics to a cultural construct of Marxism. With control of race discourse in their hands, critical race theorists turned their attention away from the legal academy and toward American culture in general. And this they have done with enthusiasm, developing and then applying new methods for the purpose and scouring the broad landscape of American life. They have found race and racism implicated in a terrifying array of institutions and practices. Whites then, white people then, stand accused and have remained largely undefended." So what is Dr. Subotnik saying here? Number one, he is acknowledging that critical race theorists basically own the narrative, with the help of the mainstream media. They own the narrative. They own the narrative, and they have used that ownership of the narrative to accuse white people of being racist. So when he says whites then stand accused and have remained largely undefended, the narrative is constructed in such a way that for anyone to defend white people or for white people to defend themselves, to, to defend yourself is inherently racist by defense, by doing that. They control the narrative. Now, please understand that when Dr. Sabotnik says that critical race theories have, quote, found racism implicated in a terrifying array of institutions and practices, he's not saying that critical race theorists have actually found objective evidence of racism in these institutions. What he's saying is that they're just simply alleging that that's the case. It's as if they're constantly pointing their fingers at every sociocultural direction and yelling, racist, 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 because that's all they have to do. That's all they have to do. All they have to do is make the allegation. That's how much control, how how much they control the narrative. I just have to say something is racist. Now, so i walked you through CT, CLS, CRT. That's how we got to critical race theory chronologically. But what is critical race theory defined? If I were to give you a definition of critical race, how, how should, if you would to ask me, well, Daryl, how should I define critical race theory? Because even critical race theorists don't agree on the definition. I wanna give you a one sentence definition of critical race theory, if you're taking notes. Critical race theory, as a worldview, is built upon one main presupposition, but is supported by at least three subordinate presuppositions. Equally important, but they're subordinate, subordinate. But here's the main presuppositional thesis of critical race theory. This is a one-sentence definition of what critical race theory is. Critical race theory is the idea that racism is the normal, common, and everyday experience of people of color in America. That is the fundamental presupposition upon which critical race theory is built. The idea that racism is the normal, common, and everyday experience of people of color in America. And what you have to understand is that critical race theory is completely presuppositional. This is what I said earlier, they don't have to prove anything. They control the narrative, so they don't have to prove anything. They can just assert, allege, and accuse, and it's accepted. And if you try to defend yourself, You're a racist by trying to defend yourself that you're not racist. So this is why I say you can't win. My advice to you, unsolicited, remember now, if you're not black, you're white. If you're approached by anyone and you're engaged in a conversation around this this topic of critical race theory, don't try to defend yourself that you're not racist. Just don't do it. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of time, don't give them the time of day. There's a, her name escapes me right now, but I'm on social media a lot. For those of you who may follow me on Twitter, my apologies uh, because you follow, you follow me at your, own, at your own risk. But there's a woman out there who will put these little, uh, what I call little hit and run tweets that, that, that cause a stir every time she does it. But uh, what she does is she'll, she'll make these assertions like, for, like one day earlier this week, she said, conservative, conservatives define woke, define woke. Well, I quote tweeted her and I said, don't do it. Don't do it, because this is all a game. This is all a game for them. It's a game. And see, the way you play this game is by not playing the game. See, when you don't play the game, they go away. So someone asking you, well, define, do you even know what critical race theory is? Well, will not you tell me? Flip the question back on them. See, as apologists, we need to understand not just how to answer questions, but we need to know that we have the freedom to ask, to ask questions about those questions. No, I'm not gonna define what, is. you define it. I'm not gonna play the game, so you don't play the game. When they don't have people to play the game with, they go away. That's how you, that's how you play that game with them. You don't play the game. So again, racism is the normal, common and everyday experience of all people in, of color in America. That is the main presupposition upon which critical race theory rests. That foundational presupposition upon which cr- critical race theory rests is embedded, an example of how that's been embedded in the culture, is this passage from the, UCLA, the website of the UCLA School of Public Affairs and Critical Race Studies, from their own website. UCLA has an entire school dedicated to this the study of critical race theory. On their website, they say this, quote, CRT recognizes that racism is ingrained in the fabric and system of the American society. The individual racist need not exist to note that institutional racism is pervasive in the dominant culture. Now, I'm, I'm not done with that quote yet, but just think about this again. See, this is why Virgil and I titled our podcast Just Thinking. You can't listen to us without using your brain cells. And my challenge is to you, I don't, I don't say that condescendingly, I'm just saying we have to be thinkers. We have to be thinkers. Does this make any sense? The individual racists need not exist to note that institutional racism is pervasive in the dominant culture. That, that doesn't make, make any sense at all. How does racism become institutional if there's no individual racism? But this is what they say. The individual races need not exist. This more big bang racism. It just comes out of nowhere. The individual races need not exist. That's like saying, that's, not, that's like saying sin exists in the world, but there aren't any sinners. You don't need individual sinners to know that sin is in the world. Well, how does sin get into the world? Continuing with the quote, this is the analytical lens. There's that word again. This is the analytical lens that CRT uses in examining existing power structures. By the way, power structures is more Marxist vernacular. CRT identifies that these power structures are based on white privilege and white supremacy, which which perpetuates, rather, the marginalization of people of color, unquote. Now, let's talk about marginalization of people of color for a second. By the way, everyone in this room is a person of color everybody. We're all different shades of melanin of the same uh, gradient of skin. All of us are people of color, okay? But let's talk about marginalization of people of color right now, because according to the UCLA website of, of uh, P- School of Public Affairs and Critical Race Studies, only white people are guilty of marginalizing people of color. Um, I talked earlier in part one about how slavery is the the one topic that critical race theorists will not let go of. Well, I stand before you right now as a descendant of black African slave owners. Owners, okay? Owners. One of the myths when it comes to marginalization of people of color is that people of color don't marginalize one another. When it comes to slavery, it was people of color who first marginalized people of color. There would never have been slavery in America if there weren't first slavery in Africa. But you got people like the 1619 Project who want to start at 1619 when the first slave disembarked the White Lion slave ship and landed in Jamestown, Virginia. But you can't start at 1619. You got to go back hundreds if not thousands of years to West Africa where tribal leaders sold their own people into slavery, then put them on the ships. The Portuguese didn't invade Africa. The Spaniards didn't invade Africa. The Portuguese and the Spaniards landed in Africa and negotiated contracts with African tribal leaders to sell their own people into slavery. Now, I've traced my paternal ancestry all the way back to Africa, to Guinea-Bissau. West Africa, to the Balanta people, B-A-L-A-N-T-A. The Balanta people were rice harvesters, and they were slave traffickers. The Balanta people trafficked slaves in exchange for farming tools. They were rice farmers. These European farming tools gave them the ability to be more productive with their harvest and, and enrich themselves. There's a book by Dr. Walter Hawthorne, titled, Harvesting, right, Planting Slaves and Harvesting Rice, about the whole story of how the Bolanza tribe participated and facilitated the African slave trade. So again, you have to exegete the culture. Don't fall into that lie that only white people marginalize people of color. Black people were marginalizing black people before any white person ever did. But what Dr. Shabotnik is here saying Accurately frames the main presuppositional thesis of CRT, that is that race is endemic to every aspect of American life. Again, it's presuppositional. That's the primary thesis upon which critical race theory makes its money. And by the way, I mean that literally. Critical race theory is making a lot of people a lot of money. A lot of money. It's making millionaires out of people. These people are writing books. They're going on uh, speaking tours. You ever makes candy? charges $20,000 a pop to sit in front of an audience of white people so these white people can hear this guy tell them how horrible they are. They pay money to hear that. <laughs> now, just for the sake of, I don't want anybody to get us, Virgin and I, we don't charge 20000 I just want to get that out there. Listen again to what Dr. Sabotnick says in his book, Toxic Diversity. Please listen closely to this because Virgin and I are huge uh, students of the Puritans. Uh, We love the Puritans. One of my favorite Puritans is Thomas Brooks. Thomas Brooks wrote a book titled uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices where he goes through 12 devices that Satan uses to get the person to tempt a Christian to sin. Uh, Device number one, he uses the metaphor of going fishing. He says Satan's primary device to tempt the soul to sin is to present the bait and hide the hook. That's what CRT does. It presents the bait but hides the hook. But see, here's the hook. Dr. Sabatini says this. He says, if race is central because racial supremacy is central to American culture, which is precisely what critical race theory presupposes, that racism is uh, uh, central to American culture. He says if race is central because racial supremacy is central to American culture, then all features of American culture are presumed tainted, presumed tainted. In such an environment, racism can be presumed and need not be proved. That's the hook. They don't have to prove it. The bait is the assertion, the bait is the allegation. The bait is just to call it racist. The hook is that you don't have to prove it. That's why it's presuppositional, it's not factual. That quote from Dr. Sabotnik again is precisely why I say if you're white, you can't win. So don't waste your time trying to defend yourself. In critical race theory, the only sin is the sin of being white. Or to put it another way, the only sin is the sin of not being black. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore now, here's the money verse, verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 5, therefore now we recognize no one according to the flesh. Now why is that verse important to our discussion of critical racism? It's important because contrary to Paul's exhortation here in 2 Corinthians 5, Critical race theory recognizes every person according to the flesh Every person It's all about the flesh Whether it's his or her ethnicity, gender, or some other intersectional aesthetic of their personhood Critical race theory is all rooted in fleshly identity It's all about the flesh It's all about division It's all about division See, what Paul is talking here, the critical race theorists cannot apply this. He cannot apply this precept of not living for themselves, but instead living for Christ who died and rose again on their behalf. The reason they can't afford to apply this precept is because it won't get them what they want. People ask virgins of me all the time, well, what's the payoff? What, what's the payoff for all this critical race theory? The payoff of critical race theory is to get paid. That's the payoff. They're, they're monetizing suffering is what they're doing. That's why there's such an emphasis on reparations. They want money. They want to get paid. They're starting to do that in California, by the way. Have you guys, has that new news made it as far east as Lubbock, Texas? where now they are, they're, 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 they're seriously looking at but I think Newsom's gonna sign this off, is, make, is, is starting to give uh, monthly checks to black people who can prove that they're descendants of slaves? You y- 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 all know this already, but there are people moving from California to Texas in droves. Don't let them California, Texas. Don't, don't let them turn California into a verb. All right, so I gave you the main presupposition of critical race theory. That's your definition. Critical race theory is the idea that racism is the common everyday experience of people of color in America. And having given you that, there are at least three supporting presuppositional theses which are these, okay? There are more, but I think these are the primary. Number one is what's called the Interest Convergence Thesis. The Interest Convergence Thesis. Interest Convergence Thesis. This idea was created by the late Dr. Derek Bell. Derek Bell was a uh, Harvard professor uh, and I think he died uh, maybe 90s, early 2000, early 2000 era. But he, Derrick Bell created this idea called Interest Convergence, and this thesis holds that racism benefits and advances the interests of white people always and only at the expense of black people. So the Interest Convergence thesis argues that where the, the needs and the issues of black people converge with white people, white people are are always going to choose what's best for them. That's why it's called interest convergence. White people are going to always choose what's in their best interest as those interests converge with black people. So that's number one, interest convergence thesis. Number two is what's called the social construction thesis. Social construction. The social construction thesis holds that race and races, in air quotes, race and races are products of social thought and relation, not fixed biological or scientific realities. Again, this is why race can mean anything. You can apply race, the allegation of racism to anything. Race doesn't just mean this anymore. Race is political, it's economic, it's sociocultural, it's ecclesiastical. One example that is ecclesiastical is when you hear about churches who say, well, you know, we need to become more multi-ethnic. That's an assertion against, it's, it's an exclusive assertion against predominantly white churches. See, predominantly black churches, they don't tell them that they need to become more multi-ethnic. And by multi-ethnic, what they mean is multicolored. That's really what they mean. Too many white faces in this crowd. We've got to do something about that. The presumption is that church is racist. Look at all these white people. You're predominantly white because your church is racist. Presupposition again, but you can't defend that, no? Interest convergence, social construction. Lastly, is what's called the voice of color thesis, or the VOC thesis. Voice of color thesis. The voice of color thesis holds that ethnic minorities are better suited to talk about systemic oppression and marginalization. In other words, if you're white, you have no right to say anything because you're the problem. You need to let voices of color speak to these issues. You have nothing to say because you're the problem white person, so you need to just shut up and listen. This is where you get groups of white people going back to 2020 after the George Floyd uh, uh, situation in Minneapolis, kissing the feet of black people in public. You had the CEO of Chick-fil-A to Cassidy Jr. doing the same thing to Lecrae. What's the color? Interest convergence, social construction, voice of color. You're white, shut it. And remember, if you're not black, you're white. In the book, The Devil and Karl Marx, the Devil and Karl Marx, Dr. Paul Kengor, professor of political science at Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania, makes the following assessment of today's culture up against the backdrop of Marxism in a chapter of that book titled Fundamental Transformation. Where well, we heard that phrase before. Fundamental transfer- Transformation. I'm going to quote now from the book by Dr. Paul Kengor, The Devil and Karl Marx. This is a rather lengthy passage, but I need you guys to hang in there with me because he nails it in describing what the current culture is up against the backdrop of Marxism. Quoting Dr. Kingor, in a crucial respect, classical Marxism and cultural Marxism will always bear an essential enduring commonality, one that explains a lot about today's modern left. Both classical Marxists and cultural Marxists see history as a series of struggles that divide the world into hostile, slash antagonistic groups of oppressors and the oppressed. I said earlier, part one, white people, you're always the oppressor. Always. Black people are always the oppressed. Both groups seek out victim groups as the anointed group that will also serve as society's redeemer group. The victim group becomes the agent for emancipation And ushering in the new and better world This is why I said in part one That the critical race theory worldview is eschatological Because they want to bring in They want to destroy this current world And usher in a new one Never think of eschatology as just the end of something It's the end of something And replacing it with something else It's never just the end of something The Marxist must always, then, be on the search for the newest victim class, which in turn must always be made aware of its victimization. Its consciousness must be raised. In classical Marxism, this was simple. The victim group was identified by class and economics. It was the proletariat. It was the factory worker. In cultural Marxism, however, this has not been so simple, because the culture is always changing. The victim group is constantly being searched for anew by the cultural Marxists. This is, matter of fact, let me just pause here and say, this is what is populating your public schools now. You've got teachers who are cultural Marxists. They're cultural Marxists. All the pride flags in the classroom, all the BLM flags in the classroom, that's Marxism. If you listen to the two episodes on Black Lives Matter that Virgil and I released in uh, the summer of 2020, we quote it from the three co-founders of BLM, Patrice Colors, April Tometi, and, and um, Opa, um, Alicia Garza. Quote it, we're trained Marxists, they said. Your public schools here across the mirror are increasingly becoming populated with uh, trained Marxists. So, Kinkor is saying, it's not economic anymore, it's cultural, it's cultural Marxism. To continue, he says, in cultural Marxism, this has not been so simple because the culture is always changing, the victim group is constantly being searched for anew by the cultural Marxists. They are looking less for factory workers, which was the case in the 1920s in Germany, they are looking less for factory workers than cultural workers. Forget the factory floor, that project failed long ago. The new recruiting ground is the classroom floor, the campus, the university, the schools. That is where the cultural workers who can usher in the fundamental transformation are being sought and being found. These modern cultural revolutionaries are succeeding magnificently in redefining everything from marriage and family to sexuality and gender. This is why nobody can define what a woman is anymore. This is what gives life to the transhumanism movement. It's becoming normative now. To surgically remove the breasts from little girls. I mean, if that, if that doesn't trouble you, I don't know what, I don't know what to say. It's a total cultural rejection of the Imago Dei in Genesis 1.27. It says, God created man, man, male and female in His image, and He blessed them. This movement is saying, no, you're cursed. Teachers in public school, they're not, they shouldn't even be called teachers. They're corruptors. I don't use the word groomers, I think that's too nice a word. They're corruptors. They possess this warped, sinful mindset that we see in Romans 1, and they're imparting them onto these innocent children, as young as kindergarten. Indoctrinating them, convincing them, while they're in the presence of the, they've got a captive audience of these two students for six seven hours a day, and they're indoctrinating them. You're not a boy. You're really a girl. You're not really a girl. Don't you feel? Don't you like wearing pants? That's what King Gore is saying here. When he says these modern cultural revolutionaries, and that's what they are, they're revolutionaries, they're succeeding magnificently in redefining everything from marriage and family to sexuality and gender. Did you hear recently in New York, the New York Supreme Court has ruled that polyamorous relationships have the same rights as two-person relationships? Why stop it at three? Why not make it 10? See, as you exegete the culture through the lens of Romans 1, and I've been convicted about this recently, where we read in Romans 1 where God turned them over to a depraved mind. He didn't just turn them over to a depraved mind. It says that he turned them over to a depraved mind to do the desires that they want to do. We're seeing more and more every day the reality of Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is desperately sick and wicked. And there is no depth to which the sinful, unregenerate heart will go. The modern cultural revolutionaries are succeeding magnificently in redefining, and let me, let me just say this again. What the culture will do in order to, ex- or order to carry out, demonstrate and exhibit this Romans 1 mindset that their unregenerate hearts desire to commit, the way they lay the groundwork for that is that they will change the language, they'll redefine everything. They'll redefine it, they'll call it something else than what God calls it. So we're talking about the sufficiency of Scripture this weekend. Scripture's not sufficient for them, of course, because their hearts are unregenerate. They won't even call a child in the womb a child. You see how they keep reducing the terms? Fetus doesn't even suffice anymore. Stacey Abrams, again, who's running for Georgia, She's on video, she's going from one black church after another, promoting her pro-murder agenda. I don't call it abortion, it's pro-murder. She's going from one black church to another in Atlanta where I was born and raised, talking to purportedly groups of black Christians telling them why they should vote for her, that one of the reasons they should vote for her is because she wants to keep legal the right to murder unborn babies. But she'll go in and argue. I saw her recently in a video. said, well, it's up for grabs. Nobody has agreement on actually the, po- the exact point in time when a life begins. You go back in Genesis 2. It says when God breathed life into Adam, it didn't say that at that moment Adam found life. It said he became a living soul. It didn't say he became a living human being. So the question isn't, when when does life begin? You want to get biblical about it, life begins in the mind of God. Because you exist in God's mind before you ever exist physically here. What did he tell Jeremiah? He said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. You have to learn to exegete these words that they use. Don't let these words go over your head. They're redefining everything. Kinger says, this is where today's Marxists in America and the West are toiling hard. In the schools, they are working diligently on the cultural front. This is where they are confident. Listen to this. This is where they are confident that they can finally take down the West, And it's Judeo-Christian bedrock that Marx and a long line of disciples looked to smash. That is the goal of, fundamentally, the goal of critical race theory, to take down the Judeo-Christian West, to destroy it and replace it with cultural Marxism. Now, I'm gonna close here shortly, but I wanna give you five reasons why critical race theory is unbiblical. At least five reasons, okay? There are more, but I've got five reasons, five reasons why critical race theory is unbiblical, at least these five, okay? At least these five. Reason number one why critical race theory is unbiblical is that it categorizes image bearers of God into groups for the purpose of causing division an antagonistic class struggle. You heard that from the mouth of critical race theorists themselves. That's not my opinion. That's what they say. That's reason number one. It categorizes image bearers of God into groups for the purpose of causing division and antagonistic class struggle. I'll leave that slide up a couple more seconds so you can take that or if you want to snap a picture of it you're welcome to do that as well. All right, reason number two why critical race theory is unbiblical is that it imparts sinful motives to certain of God's image bearers, namely white people, solely on the basis of the color of their skin. That's completely antithetical to Acts 17, 26, where we read that God created every ethnic group on the face of the earth. It imparts sinful motives to certain of God's image bearers solely on the basis of the color of their skin, namely white people. So you're guilty. If you're white, you're guilty by existing. You're guilty by virtue of existing. Reason number three that critical race theory is unbiblical is that it transfers the guilt of presumed sins, presumed, presumed sins of those from past generations to those of present generations. Past generations meaning my ancestors and your oppressors, my oppressed past generations, to those of present generations. I call this sin by proxy. Sin by proxy. Again, you're guilty if you're white, you're guilty by proxy. You haven't done anything to me personally, but because you're white, you're guilty by proxy of what your ans- what, what is presumed your ancestors did to my ancestors. So you're guilty by proxy. Again, you can't win. If you're white, you can't win this. Reason number four, the critical race theory is unbiblical, is that it is rooted in the sin of ethnic partiality. That's a violation of James chapter 2 verse 9 and others. It is rooted in the sin of ethnic partiality. Again, we need to call this what it is. There's no such thing as racism. You look at what scripture teaches, there's only two attitudes I can have towards you. I either love you or I hate you. Read the epistle of first John. I can either love you, or I can hate you. There's no ism. There's ethnic partiality. There's ethnic hatred. Lastly, reason number five. Critical race theory is unbiblical because it promotes materialistic covetousness and envy under the false pretense of justice and equity. So in other words, critical race theory promotes the idea that it's okay to take what rightfully belongs to other people and give it to someone else because that's equity. That's what DEI does. DEI discriminates in hiring because of the color of someone's skin. So an equally qualified white person will not get a job over an unqualified black person. That black person is going to get that job solely because of this. Now, there are more reasons, of course, but the fundamental question we as professing Christians must consider is this. Here's where you have to land the plane. This is where you land the critical race theory plane. Is critical race theory compatible with Christianity? Now, I just gave you five reasons why it's not. Is critical race theory compatible with Christianity? Now, I want to answer that question by quoting a passage from an article titled Christianity or Critical Theory. By Dr. Eric B. Watkins. Dr. Watkins is senior pastor of Harvest Orthodox Presbyterian Church in San Marcos, California. And the article from which I'm about to quote is published in the October 2021 issue of Table Talk Magazine, which is published by Ligonier Ministries. And in that article, Dr. Watkins write, writes this again, the article is titled, Is Critical, I'm sorry, critical race, uh, Christianity or Critical Race Theory? And we wanna answer the question, is critical race theory compatible with Christianity? Dr. Watkins says this, quote, is critical theory's worldview compatible with Christianity? This is an important question. While it may be possible to find Christians who endorse critical theory, it is nearly impossible to find critical theorists who endorse Christianity. This is because Christianity is an overarching system of thought that seeks to define reality and posits objective moral values. According to critical theory, Christianity fosters unsafe ideologies and institutions that perpetuate anti-scientific thought, intolerance for certain sexual behaviors, parochialism, patriarchy, and a punishing authoritarianism for any who do not conform. Pre-enlightenment Christianity is seen as stuck in the dark ages of intellectual barbarism, and the post-enlightenment church is viewed as perpetuating colonialism, racism, sexism, chauvinism, and homophobia. Critical theory is critical of virtually all worldviews, including Christianity. Its goal is human autonomy from any objective authority whatsoever. Now, I want to wrap up by touching on the goal of critical race theory in public schools. I commented on that a little bit earlier, but I want to reiterate that for just a couple of minutes, because contrary to what many Marxists, crits, and black liberation theologians would have you believe, Critical race theory is not merely some innocuous, innocent way of promoting anti-racism or of teaching people about the history of racism in America or of understanding how the power dynamics of white supremacy have operated in this nation. That's what a crit will tell you. A crit will tell you, well, critical race theory is just a way to, to uh, teach history about uh, the history of slavery in America. mm If history is history, you don't need critical critical race theory to filter that history through. History is history. Why do I need critical race theory to teach me about what is objectively, unchangeable, immutable history? The history is what it is. But listen to this. Again, talk about the goal of critical race theory in public schools. If you've been asleep so far about what's going on in your public school system, you better wake up after you hear this. Dr. Teresa Montano. Dr. Teresa Montano, Professor of Chicano Studies at Cal State University, Northridge, California. She heads up an organization called Liberated Ethnic Studies. By the way, we talked about exegeting the culture, exegeting the vernacular. If you get a whiff of any class in your children's public school education curriculum that says ethnic studies, that's critical race theory. That is not history. It's critical race theory. How do I know? I'm going to quote directly from Teresa Montano, a Marxist critical race theorist professor heads up a group called liberal ethnic studies. And in a video that you can find on YouTube, she was on a Zoom call with other members of this organization and she said this. I am quoting, I don't want anyone to misquote me because I'm quoting from Dr. Teresa Montano. She says, ethnic studies is more than pedagogy and content. Ethnic studies is about creating change in the community. And what you will see in the lessons that follow are how classroom teachers begin to use critical race theory connected to ethnic studies, so there you have it. Ethnic studies is critical race theory in her own words. What you will see is how classroom teachers begin to use critical race theory connected to ethnic studies in a way to empower and to create social justice activists out of our students. There you have it. Out of her own mouth, that's the goal. The goal is not to educate your children, it's to indoctrinate them. They want to create social justice activists out of our students. Remember, look at that possessive pronoun there. They're ours. They're ours, they're not yours. These children are gonna come home to you. You send them to school as little Jimmy, little Bobby, little Susie, little Mary. They're gonna come home raising this fist. They're gonna come home with a rainbow flag tucked in their backpack where you can't see it. And ultimately, your children are gonna come home from school hating you. That's the goal here, is to send your children home hating you. Teresa Montaño said the quiet part out loud. So, contrary to what its proponents may say, there is nothing harmless or innocuous about critical race theory. I hope I've helped you understand that if I've done nothing else. Hopefully, you have a clearer picture of how dangerous critical race theory is. It's not some just innocuous way of teaching history. Critical race theory is an all encompassing worldview that's coming after you, if you think I'm lying, have me back here in five years. It's coming after you, personally. It's an all-encompassing worldview that is steeped in cultural Marxism and that shares the same theological, teleological ends as what, what I quoted earlier from Dr. Paul Gingor. The goal is this the, ends is this, the end game is this, it is the takedown of the West and its Judeo-Christian bedrock. Thank you all so much for hanging in there with me this evening. I appreciate it.